0: This morning we continue on in the book of, of Acts, in Acts chapter 5. And this morning we're going to be looking at the the doctrine of God's providence. And the providence of God is a doctrine that should give us great encouragement and And great peace. You know, people who say doctrine is dull must be hearing the wrong thing because doctrine will lead to devotion. It should cause us to almost want to put forth uh, and break out into doxology, as we will see very shortly. And so the providence of God is one of those doctrines that should give us great peace. And so as it is such a held in guts, grace, stature, it is good for us first to define what we mean by the term providence. Now we have to understand when we talk about the providence of God, we're talking about the working out of what God had planned from before the foundation of the world. God didn't, you know, sometimes when we read Genesis chapter 1 and we look at the creation uh, account that's given to us, we we don't stop to think many times of what went behind that. That on the first day, God had planned before the world was what he was going to do on the first day, and the second day, and the third day, and the fourth day, and the fifth day, and the sixth day. This was all pre-planned. It wasn't like, okay, now that I've got this made, let me throw this in there. It's not the crazy hodgepodge of of that which people would say is evolution, but it was a very controlled and clear and concise plan that God put forth day by day. And so before creation, God decreed all things that were to come to pass in time. And providence is the mean by which he preserves all things. He supports and governs all things according to the order that was established before the world was. If you think you're living in a world of chaos, you're listening to the wrong, should I say, the wrong influence. Because the devil would want you to think that the world is in chaos. Would want you to think that there is no control. So what are you saying? Are you saying the devil's at ABC? Yes, at ABC, CBS, NBC, CNBC, MSNBC, and those other places that would have you every night to think that this whole world's out of control and we need, you know what we need? We need the right people and the government to control this chaos. And that, my friends, is the voice of the devil. Yes, God did ordain governments and people to govern. But he also said this is what you're supposed to do as a governor. And sometimes that's not followed very well, is it? So providence is the means by which God preserves, supports, and governs them all things according to the order he established before the world was. And if that doesn't begin to give you a sense of how awesome, how amazing our God is, then again, something is not connecting right in your own mind. The word Providence comes from the Latin. The prefix pro means before. And the Greek in the Latin video, which we get our word video from, means to see. And so literally, providence means to see before. Why is this important to us? Well, first and foremost, it's about God. And it impacts our lives, moment by moment, day by day. And even of more value, it helps us to see that God didn't create without plan or purpose. Again, just as the days of creation were orderly and carried out according to the previously decreed plan of God, so also is the purpose and preservation of that creation. That creation would have purpose and planning. Now understand, as we talk about this, first of all, it's very hard to fathom, isn't it? Because we are so bound by time and so much a part of creation that we have a hard time dealing with a creator. And the ability to conceive of things before time and before creation. When we say something happened before creation, before time, we're, we're immediately out of our realm of understanding because we're out of our realm of experience. We are marked by time even to the point where we come out of the womb. We are marked by, marked by time on conception. And then the nine-month gestation. And then the day that we are born, it is marked down even down to the minute. And when we die the death certificate gives the day the time and the minute and then when we are placed in the ground we have a stone that marks the time by which we live we are always in time and so when we think of a time <laughs> when there was no time or it gets a scratch in her head like Colombo doesn't it But the fact that you were born when you were born and the fact that you are here and alive this morning is a proof of providence, a large proof of providence. And one of the best parts of this is that we see providence as part of a general revelation. That is, it's visible to us in the general movements and activities of the day. Though I might add, it's quite invisible to the godless eye who would view things as chance or luck. Oh, if we, could, if we as Christians could get those words out of our vocabulary. A Christian's not lucky. A Christian doesn't get what they get by chance. It is all from God. Now we have what we could call a general providence. We see that all around. We see it happening. We see the way that God preserves uh, his creation through the means of using other people, other means, the second cause. But we also have what we call an extraordinary providence. That's when God in his wisdom performs miraculous acts or miracles where he doesn't use second causes. When When he parted the Red Sea That was a miraculous providence. And he didn't use second causes. He didn't call on the people, blow real hard on the water and maybe it'll it'll separate. And of course, another great example of extraordinary providence is when Jesus rose from the dead. So again, providence is the means by which God preserves, supports, and governs all things according to the order he established prior to creation. If you think it's dull and boring, then that's a very sad state of heart and mind to be in. You see, there's a goodly number of those who fashion themselves as Christians, according to the last survey that we've been looking at here, 48% 48% of those who call themselves Christians in the latest survey done by Ligonier and Lifeway working together, here's a statement that's, that came out in that survey that they were to respond to. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. And there was agree, Disagree. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% of U.S. evangelicals, those who say that they hold the Bible in high esteem and claim to have had a conversion experience through Jesus Christ, 48% agreed with that statement. Let's see if we understand providence correctly. Well, we would never make that error. It's a grievous error. In fact, it's a point to where if you believe that, you have to really wonder if you're saved at all. Because if your God that you believe is just a little bit better version of you, then you don't know the God of the Bible. If you think that, that God is learning or that by experience God says over time, well, you know, I didn't know that. I'm surprised make a note of that we'll work on that you and I are surprised but God from before the foundation of the world ordained everything that's going to come to pass that's what omniscience is all about but that's a scary thing to think about that almost half of those who say they are believers believe in a God that doesn't exist How can I have any hope, any confidence in a God who doesn't know what's happening? Who is still having to learn? That's that's us. That's not him. I would not pray at night, oh, Daryl, please save me. Please preserve my life. I wouldn't even pray that about James. Who's in a whole lot better position to do that. How can can he be God if he is no different from us? So in Acts chapter 5, verse 33, we've just seen that the, the apostles were let out of prison mysteriously by the angel. The first thing they did was go right back to preaching and teaching about Christ and healing in his name, They are brought again before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership led by the group of the Sadducees. And they have an opportunity to speak again. <laughs> and in verse 29, you remember we just go over this again, but Peter says, and we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus resurrection, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now they've, they've made this speech and what do we have? Well, the response in verse 33, when they heard this, they were Furious. And plotted to kill them. They were furious. And plotted to kill them. What's part of the reason they're furious? Well, what is it that they're preaching? They're preaching the resurrection. Remember the Sadducees who were the the largest party, the largest group. Of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But then on top of that, here they are in front of the Sanhedrin speaking this once again. The resurrection of Jesus is what we would refer to as we have an extraordinary providence, a miraculous work of the Godhead. This doctrine of the resurrection was something that triggered a major response from the leadership. And so the reaction, when they heard this, they were furious. Nothing that is reasonable and rational ever comes from people who are furious. When you're furious, you're in an out of control state of mind, and we think of this. And remember that one of the gifts of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty two to twenty three is self control. These men were out of control, and in that state of mind, the only conclusion that they could come to would be an irrational conclusion. So what is the conclusion that they come to? We have to kill them. We have to find a way to kill these men. They plotted, it says, to kill them, which means they wanted to do it now. Now we see this same reaction The same behavior in chapter 7. They come to the same conclusion. And this time they actually do kill. They stone Stephen. Who had been giving the whole history of God's redemptive work. And brought it to this point in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 7 and verse 54. And when they heard this they were... Cut to the heart, it says here in the New King James. But it's the same word translated here in chapter 5 as furious. They were furious, they were cut to the heart. You can perhaps imagine that this scene, you might even hear coming from a number of those chanting together, death, death. Death. And a discussion of how they would do it and where they would do it. Now in the midst of these howling hyenas. There's one who stands up. in Verse 34. One of the council stood up. A Pharisee. Named Gamaliel. A teacher of the law. Held in respect by all people. And he commanded the apostles to be put outside for a little while. This is a very wise man. He's one of the most revered teachers in all of, his, of Jerusalem. He is of the minority party of the Pharisees. He's the same man who would be the instructor of one Saul of Tarsus. And he commands the the apostles to be removed from the room. And in verse 35, we hear, he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. Judas, in the days of the census, we see that in Luke chapter 1 about Cyrenius, the governor, coming up with the census that would eventually move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. That's the same census. Why? Because the census is the first step to taxation. This man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be even found to fight against God. So he mentions two attempted movements by two men who were self-proclaimed messianic figures. There's a lot of that that went on, people who were claiming, and there is today. They say on any given day in California, there's at least 50 people who are claiming to be Christ. I think one of them was governor, but I'm not sure. He says what became of these movements. And based on this, he gives the instructions that we found there in verses 38 and 39. But Let's notice this. As we have mentioned before, when the the Sanhedrin got together, there was never any mention about God. He is the first one in this group to actually say something about God. But here also we see The providence of God at work. Remember, the providence of God preserves, supports, and governs. And here, God through Gamaliel is preserving his apostles, supporting them. And he does this by just one man standing up in the midst of an out-of-control leadership group and by God's grace giving wise counsel. Warning them that they could truly be fighting against God. And what was the result? Well, in verse 40. And they agreed with him. The first rational thing that they had done in a week. But it was a conditional agreement. I call it conditional. Because even though I agreed with Gamaliel, they're still angry. Remember, when, <laughs> and Ahab, he changes clothes with the other king, gets in his chariot, he rides along, and everybody's looking for Ahab. And they don't see him. All the archers got, have their, their bows drawn and they're ready. Whenever he, they see him, that's the one they're going after. And they don't see him. Well, these fellows had come to shoot their arrows at something. so one of them, as you know, in the King James, drew a bow at Venture. Just out of frustration, he lets it fly. Of course, directed by God, it lands right in between the joints of Ahab's armor. Kills him. But it's that frustration. We came here to do something at least we'll shoot it one time. Well, these men were so angry at the apostles for going against them. We've got to do something. We can't just say, all right, you're all free to go. So they still desired their pound of flesh, as it were, beating the apostles and commanding them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. Yes, they were beaten, but they were also preserved. God, was this God adopting or adapting to the circumstances? No, these are the circumstances adopting to God's plan. The circumstances were the putting of the apostles to death. The plan of God was the preservation of the apostles at that time. Gamaliel's advice was based upon the fact that in previous movements, the head of that movement was killed. And so the movement dispersed because the leader died. But here, with Christ, the decree of God from before creation was that he would rise from the dead. But someone said, well, yeah, they were protected, but they were also beaten. That's true. How were they beaten? Well, if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 24, talk about having things down to a science. Paul talks about the sufferings. He gives a whole catalog of the sufferings he had in the giving of the gospel and the work for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 24, he says, from the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. That is, in their research, they've found that there's a good potential of doing irreparable harm and death if you go 40 or more with the lashes. So you got 39. 39 seems to be the safe number. And so these apostles, we can't help but think that was a practice of the time that they all received. 39 stripes. That's a terrible thing. 39 times that whip went across their backs. That's a terrible thing. But notice verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In the providence of God, they had come to see this treatment from the Sanhedrin as a sign of the reality and power of the truth that they were proclaiming, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Instead of the events silencing them, it emboldened them and made them speak even more. And in the houses that people gathered in, they spoke there as well. They did not cease teaching and proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. The pain and the shame of the beating was treated as honor, and honor amongst the apostles. Why? Well, if we look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 22. Jesus said, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And here, as what Jesus said. Here comes truth. And the reaction is the same. You can almost like they're hearing the words of Christ in their minds as they're receiving this beating. Yeah. He said this is the way it was going to be. And he said this is the way they would receive and deal with the truth. And they rejoiced rejoiced over it. So as we as we look at this there's four things that we can we can come from, away with from this. Jesus himself made clear the extent of providence when he told us the fact that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the father. That everything is looked after even down to one of the he uses the term sparrow intentionally because that was of the least value of all the birds. So that's the extent of providence goes even further than that. Secondly, let us rejoice that before God created, he had planned and purposed all that would come to pass. There's not a time that God says, That's strange. (laughs) Even when he looks at Boy George. Thirdly, God's general promise, providence, involves the use of second causes. In essence, The first cause was God saying, I'm going to preserve my apostles for this time. The second cause that he used the means was Gamaliel. Often people doing things that they would normally be doing become the instruments of God's preservation, which tells us that we ourselves might be a means that he uses to support, preserve, or that he uses in his governing we are part of his plan for preserving the truth you might think that sitting here today you're doing something in the moment I'm here to worship I'm hearing this sermon I wish he would hurry up but the truth is going forth And in the providence of God here, then if the truth is going forth, what the truth is being preserved. And it's not only being preserved for this generation, but for the generation that follows us. We here today are not only responsible for what we're hearing today and the moment and preserving that. We're not just preserving it for ourselves, but we have a responsibility to the next generation. God in his providence is using us for that very purpose. So that no one here would be part of that 48% that think God is a learning God, an adapting God. Fourthly, thank God that in His providence and by His grace you have come to know the unchangeable, immutable, omniscient God who knows the end from the beginning. I, the Lord, do not change. That's why you're not consumed. I have covenants that I keep. Thank God that you're not among the blasphemers the un, that hold to the unbiblical teaching. that God is just a little bit better than us. If He is like us, we're doing the wrong thing to worship Him. And if He's like us, we're in desperate straits. but that we might be amazed as the apostle was amazed. You see, Paul in Romans chapter 11 was rehearsing all these things, the working of God's providence and his working out of redemption over time. And when it comes to Romans 11 verse 33, verse 33 starts off with a little two-letter word. Oh, oh, in contemplation of, of the majesty and power and wonder of God, Martin Lloyd Jones did a whole sermon just on that one word. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it might be repaid to him. For of him. And through him. And to him. Are all things. Not a few things. Not some things. But all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He didn't write that because he had a God that was just like him. But he remembered the creator-creature distinction. We are his creatures. He is the creator. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And the only way that we can ever come to an understanding is that we hold on to that distinction. Because the moment we say He is like us, we no longer have a true God. But we have something we have conjured in our own imaginations. And we are guilty of blaspheming the one true God. Let's be grateful and thankful that He has truly revealed Himself to us. Let's stand together for prayer.